Good morning, Gospel Hope. Man, I'm excited today to dive into our Christmas series that we are calling Reasons for the Season. And I hope as we work through these passages that you will be encouraged to really understand more fully and appreciate more deeply the reasons why Jesus came. So let's pray together as we kick off this series and as we open God's Word in John chapter 6 this morning. Father, you are good and your mercies endure forever. We thank you for the Christmas season and that it represents the time when our Savior came to the earth to live the life we should have lived and die the death we should have died. I pray today that we would gain a profound appreciation for the work of Jesus. Thank you for all that he's done, and it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. Uh, no doubt you have all said or heard the phrase, the reason for the season. In fact, it seems like almost every Christmas movie is aimed at somehow convincing us that the real reason for the season is not in consumerism or celebrations, but in something more intangible and deeper. For instance, It's a Wonderful Life tells us that the reason for the season is to appreciate all that you have and not, not, not lament all that you've lost. Or The Grinch, in which I believe Jim Carrey is hilarious, tells us that Christmas is about being kind to others, spreading real Christmas cheer. Or Elf, which is both ridiculous and a personal favorite, reminds us that Christmas is about time with your family, not necessarily making more money or getting the bottom line higher. Without question, these are all positive aspirations, but if you've grown up in Sunday school, you know that there is an even deeper and more profound answer to the reason for the season. You've all heard it before. It is, type it in the comments right now, is the reason for the season. Uh, of course, that's Jesus. But what does that mean? Uh, you know, that, that phrase can be so cliche, so overused, so overwrought, that it's actually devoid of real meaning. So when Christians think about the idea that Jesus is the reason for the season, what are they really saying? Or what should we be thinking? Well, over the next couple weeks, I'd like us to explore that idea together. Now, you, you may have noticed that the title of this series is not reason, singular, for the season, but it's reasons with an S for the season. Now, that was not an unfortunate typo. That was intentional. It's because when you read through the life and ministry of Jesus in the Gospels, particularly in the Gospel of John, the Lord himself tells us why he came. Several times he simply says, I have come for this reason. And therefore, we would be wise to really seek to understand the reasons that Jesus came to earth. Now, in our passage here, in John chapter 6, Jesus says that exact phrase, I have come. Look at John chapter 6, verse number 38. It says this, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So, clearly, one of the reasons that Jesus came was to do the will of God, to accomplish the will of his Father. And this is far from the only time that Jesus expressed this idea. For instance, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 7, talking about the Lord, says this, Therefore, as he was coming into the world, he said, I have come to do your will, God. Or over in John chapter 8, verse number 29, The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone because I always do what pleases him. 
And perhaps most famously, as Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said these words, yet not as I will, but as you will. It seems that Jesus, throughout his life and ministry, really was about his father's business. He was about accomplishing the will of God with his whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. But this raises a question. What was it specifically that Jesus came to do? What was the will of God that Jesus came to earth to accomplish? You know, that term, God's will, can be used very broadly, and it is throughout Scripture. But we don't need to try to explore all of those. What we want to do is look here in John chapter 6 and see exactly what Jesus is talking about. Because here in this passage, he directly and explicitly tells us what the will of God was that he had come to accomplish. Look back at the text, verse number 38 once again. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Okay, there it is. So what is this will, Jesus? This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those who he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. In other words, to put it very plainly, God's will is that his people be redeemed. God's will is that his people be rescued from their sin. Or if we could put it very succinctly, the son was sent to save. But the salvation that Jesus was sent to deliver is is a multifaceted thing. It's not a, a singular idea. It's got all kinds of facets and nuance to it. I think of it like one of those little nesting dolls. Have you seen these before? Sometimes they appear at Christmas strangely. And you look at it and and it looks like one thing, but then you open it up and you find that there's another thing in it and another thing in it and another thing in it. It looks like one thing, but it's actually a whole bunch of things. And this is the idea of our salvation. Salvation is a package deal. It all comes together. And yet when you begin to unwrap salvation, you find that there are all kinds of beautiful gifts within that great big package of the salvation that Jesus provides for us. Which brings me to my point this morning. We must value God's gift of salvation. I I think that's what Jesus is calling us to do in this passage, to really value the gift of salvation, the will of the Father to save his people, Jesus is saying to the people who were listening to him in that day and to us by extension that this is a precious gift and you must see it as such. Now, when I say value salvation, I don't mean just be thankful for it. Now, we should be thankful for salvation. Don't get me wrong. That's that's not what I'm saying. But I would argue that we should be more than thankful. Uh, Let me illustrate with a little bit of an object lesson here, I guess. You know, a a couple years ago, my wife got me an Apple Watch for my birthday or something like that. And, And when I got it, I was thankful. But the more I began to tinker with it, the more enthusiastic I became about it. For instance, I I didn't know right away, but they they have this really cool little feature on it that when you do this, you flip up with your finger and you hit this button. Boom, it pings my phone. 
I, I was like, I started doing that all the time. Because I don't know if you're like me, but I leave my phone laying all over the place. And this little feature, when I saw it, such a satisfying sound, made me think, man, that is so clever. That is awesome. And the more I use this device of technology, the more I begin to appreciate it, the more enthusiastic I became about it. And I think that is in a very small way, the way we should think about our salvation. You know, when a person gets saved, you are just scratching the surface of all that God has done for you. And the longer that you peer into your salvation, the longer you examine all that comes, all the packages, all the gifts that come with this big gift of salvation, it is amazing and it begins to blow your mind. If I could say it this way, salvation should fill us with both appreciation and amazement. I believe that through this passage of scripture, God wants us to not just appreciate our salvation, appreciate the gift that God has given us through Jesus Christ, but actually begin to be amazed by it. After all, the most famous song in Christian history is probably Amazing Grace, right? We probably all know some of that song. It's not adequate grace or average grace. It doesn't roll off the tongue like quite so well. It's amazing grace. Why? Because as we peer into the gift of God in saving us, it truly should amaze our hearts. So that raises the question, at least in my heart. It's simply this, what's so amazing about salvation? Now we could go through the whole Bible and look at different places in scripture that tell us about the amazingness of the gift of God in salvation. But what I wanna do today is simply limit ourselves here to these couple verses in John chapter six, where Jesus tells us some explicit things, some thrilling things that are fuel for us to, the fire in our hearts to say, we should be amazed by salvation. So I wanna show us three things today as we unwrap the gift of our salvation. When you begin to unwrap this wonderful package, I think the first thing that God gives us through this gift is this, recognition. Um, when you open up this idea of salvation, we gain a recognition. That is, those who the Father saves are able to see Jesus clearly. You understand what I'm saying? They recognize who Jesus is. Look at the verses there, verse number 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. So you might hear that and say, okay, Ryan, I hear you, but what's the big deal? I mean, of course I see Jesus. Can't everyone see Jesus? I understand where you're coming from on that, but here's the thing. You can, uh, according to the Bible, you can see without seeing. Go back to John chapter 6 again, just a verse earlier in verse number 36. Here's what the Lord says. But I told you, you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. In other words, there were people standing face to face. They were using their ocular nerves. Their retinas were functioning properly. They saw Jesus plainly, and yet it says they really didn't see him truly. Why? Because they didn't believe in him. They looked at him 
without really seeing him. And this is far from an isolated instance in the Bible. This happens over and over again where Christ and the authors of Scripture point out the fact that we can see without really seeing. John, Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 21. They have eyes, but they do not see. Mark chapter 8, verse number 18. Do you have eyes and not see? Matthew chapter 13, verse number 15. For this people's heart has grown callous. They have shut their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn back and I would heal them. To put it plainly, you can have 20-20 vision and be completely blind. And here's the sad truth. Spiritual blindness is an epidemic. It is a reality for the vast majority of the human race. You say, Ryan, how do you know that? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse number 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In other words, if you don't put your faith in the finished work of Christ, the root of that is that you are blind. You see, most people look at Jesus. They look at his work. They look at his life and his death, and they say things like, oh, that's silly, or that's outdated, or that's narrow, or that's just for the religious, or that's nice for you, or that's irrelevant. Whatever the case, here's the tragic reality. They do not see. They look at Jesus. Their eyes function properly, but their hearts, the eyes of their heart, do not see him. But friends, here is the reality. Jesus is not silly. He is not outdated. He is not irrelevant. He is the incomparable, incredible, self-sufficient, almighty, fully God, fully man, conqueror of sin and death and hell. He is the eternal second person of the Trinity. He is the author and finisher of our faith. He is the new and better Adam. He is the Lamb of God. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords, and he is the friend of sinners like you and me. And if you see him this morning, if you look at Jesus and you see him as that, then rejoice. Right now in your heart, rejoice because not everybody can see Christ in that way. Remember the song again? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost and now am found. I was blind, but now I see. So if you look at Jesus and see beauty, and see glory, and see grace, and see mercy, and see treasure, then deeply rejoice in your heart that your eyes have been opened and the God of this world no longer has blinded you. Some of you may hear me this morning and be saying, Ryan, I'd like to see Jesus. Honestly, I would. I, I, I mean, you say all those things, and I've maybe heard those things, but if I'm really honest, I'm awfully distracted. I, I don't really see Jesus in that way. But here's the good news for you, friend. I want you to hear this very plainly. 
This is exactly why Jesus came. Here's what the Lord himself says. John chapter 9, verse number 39, the words of Jesus. I came into this world in order that those who do not see will see. So if you think you're blind right now, if you think you really can't see the glory of Jesus, if the idea of being amazed by Christ seems foreign to you, look at the Savior. He came to give eyes to the blind. My encouragement is look closely. If Jesus is not beautiful to you, look again through this word. It is if the Lord himself is handing you a custom pair of glasses with your prescription fit perfectly for your eyes, for your face, so that you can put them on and say, I, I look at Jesus and he's blurry and, or I don't appreciate him. And then I put on the lenses of faith and suddenly he is beautiful to me. So if you don't see Christ as beautiful, look again. Look, Christian friend, One of the greatest gifts of our salvation is the ability to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you look at Jesus and are amazed by him this morning, do not take that gift for granted. That is a fine and blessed and precious gift of the Father to his people. Rejoice in it and celebrate it. That is one of the reasons why Jesus came, so that blind people could see. But that's not the only aspect of this gift of salvation that Jesus highlights in this passage. Not only do we receive recognition, the ability to see, we also receive refuge. Look again at the text, verse number 39. This is the will of him who sent me. Now notice this next phrase that I should lose none of those he has given to me. That's a good word. Or also in verse 40, for this is the will of the Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. In other words, those who trust in Jesus are utterly secure in him. They have a refuge in God. To put it very succinctly, the Lord both saves and keeps. Oh man, my oh my, this is good news for me because if I am really being real, if I'm being honest, I have some awful days. I lose my temper with my kids. I worry about the future. I speak unkindly to others. I assume the worst about people's motives. I get impatient. I don't pray like I should. I rely on my own strength rather than God's. I'm not as bold as I ought to be. I have a hard time not being selfish. And sometimes my heart is just dominated by unbelief. And that was just yesterday. I'm just kidding, kind of. Can you identify? Can you identify with this idea that our hearts are oh so prone to wander from the Lord? But here's the good news that all of us need to hear this morning. Your position before the Lord never has been and never will be dependent on your performance for the Lord. 
Your position before the Lord never has been and never will be dependent on your performance for the Lord. You see, the Lord accepts us by his grace. Glory, hallelujah. He keeps us by his grace. Now that is no license to go be wilding out everywhere. In fact, the unconditional acceptance we find in Christ should be a deterrent for sin. For why would we want to hurt and dishonor one who loves us so well? But here's the truth. This truth is such a great reminder. We are on God's grip both in our best days and in our worst days. God hangs on to us when we are at our best and when we are at our worst. And that is good news for all of us. You know, as many of you know, I have 100 children. Actually, only eight, but 100's a rounder number, and it's easier to remember. Uh, while I'm not sure if all of these kids have made me a good parent, there's undoubtedly in my mind this idea. I'm an experienced one. I've had a lot of them. I've spent a lot of time with them, so I am an experienced parent. And one of the triumphs of my parenting, one of the things that I am most proud of is the innovation that I call the pinky lock. Now, if you've been a parent or aunt or uncle or grandma or grandpa, you know, you know that there are times in a child's life when it is a requirement for their own safety for you to hang on to their hand. You must hang on to their hand to prevent them from getting run over or anything like that to just protect them. But here's the thing. Sometimes when you hold a little child's hand, they, they become incredibly squirmy and they're able to wriggle out even of the most determined grip. So that is where I came up with what I call the pinky lock. And here's what it is. I, I mean, this is pro parenting tip for you, okay? All it is, instead of regularly holding their hand like this, I take my pinky and I put it over here and I lock their hand just like this. And what that does is I'm hanging onto their wrist and they're not able to squirm away. No matter how much pulling or how much wiggling they do, I, my grip remains tight to them. I hold on to them even when they cannot hold on to me. Friends, this is, I think this is a picture of how the Lord keeps us. Even when my heart wants to wander in a whole bunch of different directions, and it often does, I find great comfort knowing that I have found a refuge in my Father's hand. One of the precious gifts of salvation is that God holds on to me stronger than I can hold on to him. As Jesus would later say in John chapter 10, I give them eternal life. I love this. And they will never perish. Well, why? Why won't they perish, Jesus? Because no one will snatch them out of my hand. Oh, so you've got them. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. So Jesus has got them and the father has got them. And then he adds one more. I and the father are one. These hands are eternally bonded together. Children of God, remember this. You are in the grip of grace. <laughs> what a blessing it is to know that even when our hearts betray us, even when we are weak and sinful and broken, we have found a refuge. I will, I will give them eternal life and I will lose none that my Father has given to me. Child of God, rejoice. You have a refuge in your salvation. And finally, not only 
do you have recognition of who Jesus is and a refuge in God himself, but you are given this sweet gift of resurrection. Twice in these two brief verses, Christ makes an astounding promise. Look at verse number 39 again. This is the will of him who sent me that I should lose none of those he has given me. Notice this, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who sees the son and believes in him will have eternal life. And what does he say again? And I will raise him up on the last day. In other words, part of the package of salvation is that you get an eternal resurrected life. Because Jesus went to the cross and bore the sins of his people and rose victoriously out of the tomb over sin and death and the devil himself. If you trust in Christ, you partake of his resurrected life. What that means is very simple. For those who trust in Jesus, death never has the final word. Never. If you trust in Christ, the resurrected life of Jesus that is in your spiritual DNA cannot and will not ever be killed. This is always incredible news, but it's particularly encouraging news today. As you are all too well aware, our world is facing a pandemic. And death, even during the Christmas season, is on our minds far more frequently than usual. But let us remember, if you have trusted in Christ, death is not the end of your story, but just a transition to the next chapter. Through faith in Christ, the believer's experience of death is utterly transformed. Let me use an illustration. Uh, suppose you had some sort of time machine and were able to go back in time to the to the occasion when human beings first witnessed a solar eclipse. Can you imagine how you would have felt at that moment when the moon passed between the sun and the earth and the shadow of the moon completely blocked out the rays of the sun and you had no idea what was going on? You would have been terrified. You would have been scared out of your mind because it would have looked like to you that the sun had been extinguished and it was not coming back. It would have been a terrifying occasion. But now, but now if we view a solar eclipse, if that is on the calendar for um, astronomy, then there's parties and celebrations. Well, why is that the case? Because people understand that the eclipse, the darkening of the sun, is only a temporary reality. It's not permanent. It won't last. It will only go on for a few minutes and then it will be gone. And brothers and sisters, this is the way that Jesus has, has changed death. He reminded the people of God that for them, death is only temporary. Or if I could put it this way, Christ removed death's permanence. And therefore, it is not something that we should ultimately fear. Man, this frees us in a thousand different ways to live in risky faith. Death cannot sever the connection that we have with God. Death does not win for the people who have trusted in Jesus. As Romans 8 famously says, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No matter what happens during the pandemic or after it, no matter what happens with our economy, if it goes up or if it goes down, no matter who is in office, no matter what happens in your life personally or in your family, even if you or your loved ones die, if you have trusted in Jesus, he will raise you up on the last day. Oh, my friends, if you have trusted in Christ, you cannot lose. Those who are in Jesus cannot lose. So where does this all leave us? Well, the reason that Jesus came to earth was to do the will of his father. And, and what was his father's will? Well, God wanted to give an astounding gift to his people who would trust in his son. He wants you. He desires for you. He longs for you to receive this gift and be blown away by the amazingness of it. He wants you to marvel at this gift of salvation, to, to worship him because of the wonder of this gift. So I ask you, and I ask myself, I ask all of us these two simple questions. Do you appreciate this gift? And are you amazed by this gift? Maybe you've heard all this and are thinking, man, I hear you, Ryan. I really want to be. I want to appreciate and be amazed by salvation. I, I want to look deeply into what Christ has done and be blown away but I'm not sure I do right now. What should I do? Is there, is there any path forward? Well, let me offer you two very practical suggestions if you want to be more deeply amazed by the work of Jesus. The first one is very simple. Ask for God's help. Can I simply suggest that if God wants to give this gift to people, then it would be completely appropriate for us to say, Lord, would you help me to see? Would you give me eyes that I can see the beauty of Jesus Christ? Would you help me to not be so distracted by all the things of the world? Would you help me to focus in on who Jesus is and that I would behold him so closely that my heart would be filled with wonder? Just ask for God's help. And I think that's a prayer that all of us should pray. Maybe you could pray something like this. Lord, give me eyes to see. I want to see the beauty and the wonder of Christ in a more deep and real way than I have before. In fact, what I want to do right now is invite you to pray that right now. I'm going to pause for just a minute and invite all of us to say, Lord, during this season, would you help me to see Christ more clearly? Let's pray and ask for God's help. The second thing I would encourage you to do is not simply ask for God's help, but to look at God's word. Sometimes it's ironic that we want a greater vision of Jesus, and yet our Bibles lay on the shelf gathering dust. Friends, 
one of the primary ways that we see Jesus is through this book. This book is called the Word of God, and Jesus is called the Word of God. So you could put it this way. The Word of God was given to us so that we could see the Word of God. So I would encourage you, particularly during this Christmas season, to open God's Word. And if I could be very specific, I would say, why don't you read one of the Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And if I could even offer a very specific path, if over the next several days you would read the Gospel of Luke, if you would read just two chapters a day, and I, I assure you that will only take you about 10 minutes. If you will read the Gospel of Luke two chapters a day, you will wrap it up by Christmas time and be able to see the whole unforty story of why Jesus came, how he lived, why he died, and why his resurrection matters so deeply. Let's be people that really strive to have eyes to see the beauty of Jesus. Let's appreciate the gift of salvation and let's be amazed by the gift of salvation. So whether you see Jesus clearly or not right now, my invitation to all of us would be this. Let's ask for the Lord's help. Lord, help me to see. And let's look at God's word and open it so that we could behold the wonder of Christ and all that he has done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you have revealed yourself and we thank you that you sent your son to do your will, which was save your people. Oh Lord, I pray, I pray that there would be many that would hear this word and more deeply appreciate and be amazed by the work of Christ on behalf of sinners like us. Oh Lord, we need you. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks, Gospel Hope.